Our scripture reading today is Genesis 16, 1 through 10, in the Pew Bible, page 10. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived ten years in Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said to Hagar, servant of Sarah, Where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for the multitude. This is the word of the Lord. Well, isn't it an understatement to say that the music has been wonderful this morning? Wonderful job by Sarah and Ryan. Kimberly, a good word from you. Thank you so much. And the choir, you just did a fantastic job. And Emily, wonderful soloing there. Uh, we come to the third in a series called, that's why they call it Faith, Lessons from Abraham. If you have been here, you get the sense once again that this story of Abraham is not so much about Abraham, but about God. It's his story. And it's his story about his graciousness, his mercy, his unending love in spite of Abraham, in spite of Sarah, in spite of ourselves, too. The entire word of God is more about him than us. It is him working through us in spite of ourselves. We need not mythologize Abram, who becomes Abraham. And I'm going to use the names Abraham and Sarah, because that's what they eventually come to be known but as you really study the story of Abraham, you realize that he was every bit as flawed and dysfunctional as you and me. And so we come to the issue, the flaw, the dysfunction that can come along due to impatience. There's a great New England preacher in the 19th century, Phillips Brooks. He was known to be poised and rather quiet, but he, like you and me, still had his moments of frustration and irritability. And one day, a friend of his came into his office and he saw Dr. Brooks just pacing feverishly back and forth in his office, obviously flustered about something. And the man said, what's the trouble, Dr. Brooks? To which he answered, the trouble is I'm in a hurry, but God isn't. And we can relate to that. You and I have felt that way Many times, and we have to remember that there is our time and there's God's time. We sang about that a moment ago, trusting in his time, not ours. Beautiful things happen in his time, not necessarily 
in our time. God's grand designs are rarely hurried. He intentionally chose to work in and through history, and history does not travel at a rapid pace all the time. Sometimes it seems too long, and we lose patience, and it becomes really a control issue. We want to take matters into our own hands, and when we do so, way too often it results in disaster and dysfunction. An amusing example of that has been playing itself out in the worldwide news just this week. For a hundred years, there's a beautiful mural that held a proud place at the Sanctuary of Mercy Church in Borja, Spain. It's an Ecce Homo painting, Behold the Man painting, which is one of those paintings, it's a genre of paintings that show Jesus with a crown of thorns, and it's called Behold the Man, an Ecce Homo painting. Let's put the first uh, slide up there, Philip, so you can see how it was originally uh, painted. Do we have it there? Okay, one minute, he's giving me that sign. Is it not coming up? Well, there's Brookwood Baptist, and I think that's a beautiful painting right there. There we go. Thank you. This is the original painting, and uh, it was completed by Elias Garcia Martinez in the 1930s. But decades of moisture buildup began to cause the painting to deteriorate. Go to the next slide, and we'll see that. That's where it was originally on one side, and then you see where it began to deteriorate and fade, and the priests and the leadership around that community had discussed the possibility of restoring it. Let me just stop here. I want to ask, do, you, do, you know, do any of you know where this is going? Have you all seen? Okay, you've seen it. There was a dear woman in the church, 80-year-old Cecilia Jimenez, who grew impatient with the priests and could not wait any longer, and she took it upon herself to touch up the painting. It did not turn out well. Next slide. You can sort of see that on one end. Go to the next one, you get a close-up. There you go. The New York Times said it is probably the worst art restoration project of all time. A Spanish newspaper said the restoration turned into a destruction. The BBC said the delicate brush strokes by Elias Garcia Martinez have been buried under a haphazard splattering of paint. The once dignified portrait of Jesus now resembles a crayon sketch of a very hairy monkey in an ill-fitting tunic. Now, in interviews recently, Ms. Jimenez defended her decision. All this happened in August, and she's still talking about it. Some points she blamed the parish priest for being too slow, should have taken care of it sooner. But in some cases, she, she took responsibility, but she kept using the word fix. She wanted to, she wanted to fix it, fix the painting. And here's her quote, we've always fixed everything ourselves in this church. We saw everything was falling down, and we fixed it. Well, sometimes we've been guilty of wanting to fix it too soon. They are not sure if the painting is reparable, but folks have been having a heyday with it on the Internet and kind of using it for different ways. I've just got a few examples. Let's go to one here. There's, uh, there it is applied to the Mona Lisa. Go to the next one, Philip. There's the Last Supper. Next one. Uh, there you go, the statue there in, in Brazil, they've, they've applied it to that. What else? Let's see. It's on a piece of toast now. Uh, what else have we got? Oh, this is, you see the top, and then Luke Skywalker finally removes the helmet, and his father, Darth Vader, looks like that. Okay, next one. 
Uh, there's E.T. <laughs> Pretty good likeness, actually. And then I think from another well-known movie, uh, yes, Rafiki places... The, it looks just like the Simba in uh, The Lion King, and I think we have m one more of the... Yes, instead of... Uh, uh, yeah, oh, I thought we were going to have the animation with it. He actually does a little spread thing, but I guess that doesn't work. But there you go. You have all these... No, 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 go to the next one. Let's see. Okay, we're finished, Philip. Thank you. Uh, now, here's a great example uh, and, and what's funny, I don't know if you saw on the news just the other day, it was either yesterday or the day before, this same woman has said, uh, you know what, I should claim some of the royalties to this. Hey, you all see that? And now she's demanding that all this airtime that it's getting on the internet and on TV and in other places, she should get some of the royalties. And she's claiming that at least some of it will go to charity. Well, the dysfunction continues. And, and, and she lost patience. She could not wait any longer she decided to take things into her own feeble hands and it resulted in disaster and dysfunction and we do the same thing with our spiritual lives when we take matters into our own hands and we saw that last week with abram when he lied and we see it in this week as well last week he lied and this week he fails in another miserable way that shows what a flawed patriarch he is. And let me just say, and as you know, this is not a comfortable story. It's a tough story to unpack in a, in a brief amount of time, but it's also kind of a brutal story and shows really severe dysfunction even among our forefathers and mothers who are in Scripture. Now remember, and I think this is important to keep in mind, that first and foremost, this is not a book of virtues. It's a book about grace. It's not a book of virtues with all of these moral examples, moral exemplars who live such righteous lives all the time. It's a book about God. And it's a book about God's faithfulness and grace. It's much more his story. And it's a story of God working in and through us and working things for good in spite of how badly we can blow it sometimes. Now, one well-known Old Testament scholar has said there are four characters in this story. An exploited slave, a barren woman, a stupid man, and a mysterious friend. Now let's look at the story. Abraham and Sarah had been in and around Canaan for 10 years. They, 10 years before, had been promised a son. But now it has been a decade and they have not had a son yet. And it says that she was barren. And that is a harsh word. And we don't use that very much today. And we shouldn't. You know, should not be used, but it was used back then. You know, people who struggle with infertility today are just incredible so often and contribute richly to society, and no way does that suggest that someone is a failure. But in that ancient day, it did suggest failure. Why? Because to be infertile was to be perceived as a failure. A wife's job back then was simply to have kids. That was it. And that really was, to a large extent, due to the issue of economic survival. Again, that's why, to a large degree, why you had arranged marriages. And you tried to arrange a marriage that would work best for both parties. And you tried to marry a woman who was going to help your family the most. And if they were perceived to be able to have a lot of children based on family history, family lineage, that was all the better. So again, that was just the way it was in that ancient culture. So in some ways you can understand Sarah's plight. She feels like she has let Abraham down. Has it 
happened in 10 years. She's let herself down. She's let her family down. She's even let God down. So we can understand to a large degree why she is feeling this way, but that does not justify her action. She knew that she was promised a son by God with Abraham, but she lost her patience and her faith wore thin. And she decides that getting a kid is more important than having faith in God. And so she goes to Abraham and says, I'm tired of waiting on God. Let's take matters into our own hands. She was following the biblical verse, God helps those who help themselves, right? That's in scripture, is it not? It is not, okay? Please remember that. But she carries that attitude. And what she suggests was common and culturally acceptable in that day. But it was not God's will at all. But she tells Abraham to go and sleep with Hagar, the slave. And she was a slave of Sarah's. And because she was a slave of Sarah's, if Hagar had any children, the children would actually belong to Sarah because Sarah owned Hagar. That's the way it was. So she tells Abraham to do that. And he says, okay. Now, Hagar is a slave owned by Sarah. Again, Hagar gets pregnant. And isn't that what, you know, they were all hoping for? And isn't everything good now? No, they were taking matters into their own hands and trying to solve things themselves instead of trusting God and God's time. And because of that, dysfunction follows. If you look at verses 5 and 6, Sarah begins to despise Hagar. Why? Well, it's clearly implied. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but it's clearly implied there that Though she was Sarah's slave, Hagar is now a little more confident about things and she's not groveling before Sarah. In fact, no doubt she was strutting before Sarah. In a sense, elevating her place, at least as shown by her attitude and perhaps her actions. And it makes Sarah angry to the point that she goes to Abraham and says, you are responsible for this. Now let's stop there for a minute. Who's the one who arranged this thing? Who was it? It was Sarah. But she goes to Abraham and says, you are responsible for all this that's happened now, for this thing blowing up and things not working out well. Now, I want to ask the men, first of all, in this room, do you think you can understand maybe why Sarah is so upset at Abraham? How many of you men think you might know why? That's what I figured. Women, do you think you at least have a... Now, Sarah comes to him and says... We're not having a child you know, sleep with Hagar, and, and we'll do it that way and all that. Women, can you kind of understand why Sarah is saying this is your fault and you're responsible? Can, women, can you sort of understand? I think the, I'll just say, and we're all being modest here, but I think the women can understand maybe a little bit better. I wonder if Abraham's response instead of, okay, should have been, Sarah, you are my wife. And this may take a take a little bit longer but we're going to trust in God's time and my covenant with is with you and you're the light of my life and and however long this takes I'm going to be faithful to you can you see how that might have been just a little bit better of an answer instead of okay okay so Abram is the stupid man and he gets even stupider you know he gets she's upset and he just you know what do I do and Sarah's like what how are we going to get out of this what do we need to do and Abraham says in verse six he says do whatever you want she's your slave Treat her as a slave. 
And Sarah, unfortunately, it says, mistreated Hagar. Now, this is where it gets a little brutal because that is the same word used in the book of Exodus to describe how the Israelites were treated by the Egyptians when the Israelites were slaves and they were not breaking, making bricks fast enough. In other words, Sarah beat Hagar. That's what happened. She beats her and Hagar flees. You see the dysfunction. You see the disaster here. Because of their taking matters into their own hands. These are people who were visited by God himself saying, we're going to start with you and you will become the parents of many nations. And yet they have stopped trusting. Again, let me just say the Bible is not a book of virtue so much as it is a story of God intervening with his grace in spite of ourselves. In spite of our bad works and our bad decisions so often. It's a book it's really more a book about moral and spiritual failures and yet God's grace coming through and shining upon us and working in and through us nevertheless. We've got to keep that in mind. So you have the exploited slave and the barren woman and the stupid man, which leads us to this mysterious friend. Hagar is on the run, but think about it. She's a vulnerable, penniless slave with a little boy, Ishmael. Where does she have to go? Who can rescue her? Well, it's this strange, strange friend, mysterious friend. Let me read verses 9 and 10. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. He, he had come to her and said, where are you going? He says, I'm running away from Sarah. He says, go back and submit to her. Submit to her, this woman who beat me, who treated me so harshly, and I thought I was following orders. And the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Go back and submit to her, because ultimately you're going to be blessed. For one thing, go back and submit to her, because truly, you have nowhere else to go. And a woman in her situation in that day didn't have anywhere to go, not anywhere good. She was vulnerable. Her little child was so vulnerable. And he says, go back and submit to her for now. But good things will come along. you got to go back. Now, do things get all hunky-dory and tied up in a nice bow when she gets back? No. You fast forward to Genesis 21 and Sarah gets jealous again. And she says to Abraham, cast her out. And Abraham unwillingly casts out Hagar and the boy Ishmael. In fact, to the point that where they are out and about again in a vulnerable point and they are on the verge of death, but this mysterious friend comes along again and takes care of them and ultimately they are freed from their enslavement and life becomes good to them again. Which is so interesting to me in a way, by the way, because she's a slave, but really this whole story to a large degree is about Sarah being enslaved to her own impatience. But Hagar wound up being blessed, but it took time and it took patience to get there. And that's what God does with you and me sometimes. God says things are going to work out okay. Trust Romans 8.28, but that's so difficult for you and me sometimes when we cannot see it. God is saying to us, if you could see the whole picture, the whole grand design, you would sit back and smile and understand this all works out as it should. But we can't see it. Paul says we see through a glass darkly, and indeed we do. And when we find it difficult to see a little bit further beyond the horizon than we can, it becomes so challenging for us sometimes. And yes, we do want to be in control and take care of matters. But when we do that, 
we stumble and fall. Are you willing to be patient with this God who tells us to remain faithful, who sometimes even puts us to the test to be faithful? Will you still trust him? So often we have this children's understanding of time. Do you remember when you were a child and if you asked mom, what, you know, how much longer till supper? Oh, it'll be about 45 minutes. 45 minutes! It's an eternity. It reminds me of the four-year-old boy I knew of who, who went hunting with his father and didn't realize when we got, they got into the car, the, the, the place where they were going hunting was about 150 miles away. And after about 50 miles, the boy was like, Dad, are we, are we almost there? No, son, it's going to be a while. A few miles down the road, Dad, are we there? Are we almost there? No, son, we're not there. It, you know, it got to the point he could not take it anymore. Dad, are we there yet? No, son, we're not there yet. And he could tell his dad was getting irritated. And he waited another 40 miles or so, and he could not take it. And he said, Dad, will I still be four when we get there? Sometimes it seems like an eternity, but there are so many others in Scripture who were challenged with being patient. It took Moses 40 years to get to the brink of the promised land. Joseph was imprisoned for two years unfairly waiting for justice perhaps to come along and he didn't know if it would come along but he was in prison for two years accused wrongly paul waited a decade after his conversion before he really began to minister and i'm sure he welled up so many times thinking i'm so ready to get out there but he had to wait and be patient until god told him to go and preach in jerusalem jesus himself think about it it's a briefer amount of time but for 40 days he was in the desert eating nothing so hungry, overcome with temptation and vulnerability to give up his mission to save us and the rest of the world. But he overcame that vulnerability and temptation, but he had to be patient. And fortunately, in this story, in spite of the long wait, in spite of Abraham and Sarah blowing it by trying to take things into their own hands, and in spite of Hagar being treated so harshly, good news comes to all three of these people. God on his end remains faithful to them. What was the good news for Abraham and Sarah? Well, you and I know, in spite of their failure, God remained faithful. And in God's time, God gave them the promised son named Isaac. And as their story goes on, you see, they still stumble somewhat at points. But what's beautiful is that you can tell that their faith gets stronger as they go along. That's confirmed in the narrative. They they get stronger in their faith. And I think that at least part of the reason is that in spite of the fact that all of this was taking place some 2,000 years before the advent of Jesus in the world, Jesus who came to save by his grace, that somehow even 200 years prior to that, Abraham and Sarah began to have at least a grasp on some level of the difference between grace and works. You see, to receive the child by way of Sarah, was to receive the child as a gift of grace, Isaac. It was receiving that blessing from God, which was such a gift, such a grace from God. But to receive the child by way of Hagar represented what? Works. Taking matters into your own hands due to your desire for control and because of your own impatience. And I think they came to discover the meaning of that. I think that's why Paul says in Galatians 4, ultimately Abraham obeyed the law. And as it says in there, his son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, 
But the son from Sarah was born according to God's divine promise. On some level, obviously, they began to grasp this understanding of grace as opposed to works. And so often you and I wind up, even though we have received that grace from God, we fall prey to that temptation to live out our faith by works instead of realizing what a gift of grace it is. But once they grasped that, Abram and Sarah, their situation began to improve and they saw the beauty of how God was working this story all for good. He remained faithful to them. And obviously he showed his ultimate faithfulness to all of us by at that right point in time, that Kairos moment in history, he sent his only son that you and I could be rescued ourselves. Which leads us to the good news for Hagar. Was there good news for Hagar? Yes, there really was. And sometimes we don't realize that. We forget this. It's shown so beautifully by the mysterious friend who happens upon her. It doesn't happen upon her. It's intentional. God is not exclusive in his concern in this story just for Abraham and Sarah. Yes, they were the ones whom he selected. And through them, this new nation would be born and ultimately give birth to the son of David, Jesus himself. But he's still concerned with people who are outside that line, like this poor slave girl, Hagar. First of all, how is she blessed? Well, first... She's the first person in Scripture to be visited by a divine messenger. First person in Scripture. And let me say, this is not any divine messenger. Not just any messenger. Let me read verses 7 and 11. It says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. Verse 11, The angel of the Lord said to her. Anywhere else in Scripture it says, An angel of the Lord. This is the angel of the Lord of the lord in fact look at verse 10 the angel added i will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous too numerous to count do you notice what's different there doesn't say god the god whom we worship will increase your family it's saying i will interesting not god will increase your family i will Good biblical scholars suggest this is the Lord himself talking. If nothing else, as one has said, a pre-incarnational form of Christ coming to speak to Hagar. What an incredible gift. In fact, another incredible blessing is Hagar is the only person in all of Scripture who dares to name the Lord. Look at any other time when, especially in the Old Testament, when people come to the Lord face to face, or the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, When you realize you're talking to the omnipotent, almighty, creator, holy God of all things, are you really jazzed about that? Are you happy about that? Are you excited? No. Woe is me. Woe is me. And yet she dares to name the Lord himself. Look at verse 13. This poor slave girl. It says, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. Here's the name. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. (laughs) She recognizes that it is her Lord, it is the Lord, and she voices it. No one else in the Bible ever does that. And she's blessed by that. And I love how (laughs) accessible he is to her. He comes to her so near. To a fugitive slave woman, he blesses her with his immediate 
presence, the creator of all things notices, cares to notice this slave girl. Thirdly, Hagar is the first woman to hear the announcement that she will bear a child. It really is a forerunner to the other angel who came to Mary who heard an angel tell her that she will bear a child. And Hagar is also the only woman in the Bible who receives a promise from God of further descendants. Abraham received that blessing, that word that he would have descendants too numerous to count. And now Hagar, the slave girl, gets the same kind of word. And finally, she's the first woman in Scripture to cry for her dying child. And many see this as a precursor to Mary, who wept over the dying of her son, who was dying. But you know, in the story of Hagar, they are cast out that second time in Genesis 21. And this mysterious friend comes along and again and says, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to save you. And he saves their lives. You see how you fast forward into the life of Jesus and that dying son who did die. But in his death, he rescued you and me. If only we make ourselves open to him. That son who came back to life is our rescuer. And so that brings us to this moment. He's rescued you before. And he will do so again if you trust him, if you remain faithful. And so will you do that this day? I'd like for us to close our eyes and enter into the discipline of meditation I want to ask you very specifically and very personally, is there some part of your life where you find yourself in a fog of frustration or maybe confusion? You find yourself feeling blinded by uncertainty and it's wearing on your patience and you just wish you could handle it yourself. And yet deep down you know probably you can't. And you need God's help. Or maybe you've already tried to handle it yourself and failed. Are you going through some kind of difficulty, some kind of trial right now? And you're just wondering, how is all this going to pan out? How is this all going to work out? I want to ask you to ask God right now to help you have the faith to trust that once again, in all things, he works for good in your life. Will you pray that prayer of faith to him right now? In just a moment, Lord, we're going to sing Have Faith in God and we need to trust that you are on your throne and that you are looking at the grand scheme of all things. And because of that, we can trust you that all will be well, that all will work out as it should. Help us to begin trusting like we never have beginning now, leaning not on our own understanding and our own actions and our own desire to control, but acknowledging you, submitting to you, trusting that you will direct our paths. Forgive us when we grow impatient, O oh God. We do believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to trust. Give us, O oh God, faith. Amen.